Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. Giving more individuals the means to create uh, their own games without needing to rely on large teams, without needing to rely on publishers, would result in more personal works, more interesting works, works about, you know, a, a wider variety of human experiences. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Remember, folks, if you're a fan of Pixel Therapy, there are several ways you can support the show. And the first and most generous of those ways is to come on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod and subscribe for as low as just $2 a month. And that'll get you a monthly bonus episode, a cool little album art sticker and Spencer and I's undying love and appreciation, which is what this is all about Mm -hmm. our love (laughs) and appreciation (laughs) if patreon's not in the cards for you though that's okay you can also rate us and review us on apple podcasts or your podcast platform of choice that sort of thing does have a real impact and if we like what you write we may just have to read it on the show sometime all right spencer it's time to get cozy (laughs) pull up an armchair feel free to lie down on the couch let's talk about our feelings how the hell are you well, Jamie, first, I'd like to thank you for your flexibility and patience. Uh, <laughs> Always. And have to slightly reschedule our recording time today. Uh, I actually just got back from CVS. Um, I like not to alarm anyone, like everyone's fine, but um, we had a little some sniffles in the house today. And so um, we went out and apparently you can get I didn't know this, so that's why I'm talking about it. Sorry if I'm boring anyone's pants off, but <laughs> I just wanted to share that I had no idea you could just go to CVS and behind the front counter, I guess if you're, where is CVS? Is that, I think there's CVS's internationally, but I'm particularly talking from an American <laughs> context, but yeah. right behind the front counter, they have um, rapid tests where you can um, take them for COVID-19 and know within 15 minutes if you or a loved one has it. Um they were like 20 bucks for like two um, each in each box. And so I just wanted to mention that because um, at least for us, like living in a more rural area, it's not super feasible for us to always just go to a doctor every week to get tested or, or however often it's kind of a, a jaunt, like an hour or something to like go see someone. So um, I think it's just a really nice option to have um, just in case um, and like just a way to keep yourself safe. So if, if folks didn't know, um, I think most pharmacies now are stocking them and you don't need, you don't need a prescription or anything. Um, but it's just one more thing that you can do, especially now as like the Delta variant is like doing its thing. Um, it just doesn't really seem like this thing. COVID's going away anytime soon. Um, no. So not. I'll let you, I'll let everyone know how the tests turn out. Uh, but yeah, we're feeling good. 
<laughs> just some fun Saturday morning activities. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just it's a nice way to wake up and start the day uh, with some urgency <laughs> related to COVID-19. Um, but yeah, I've been good. Um, I mentioned this in our most recent Patreon co-op mode. Just a little, mm. little ad there. Mm, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, if people um, want to go check that out. Just $2. Yeah, pixel therapy. Or sorry, patreon.com slash pixel therapy bot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am now the proud owner of an Xbox Series S. Yeah. Love it. I actually, I mean, it looks really good with the PS5. So mm-hmm. I, it's really completing my um, TV stand. But um, Jamie has really evangelized um, Game Pass <laughs> to me. And honestly, there's something really exciting about turning on the console and then being like, wow, that game looks really cool. Do I have $60 in my wallet to pay for this? Doesn't matter because I have Game Pass. I just click <laughs> on it and it's there. Yeah. Um, so it has um, kind of I can do kind of use it the same way I use Netflix now, though. Like, I feel like it's mm. already turned into that thing where it's like, oh, that looks interesting. I will download it and never play. It. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, the <laughs> choice paralysis is too yep, much. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of that. But um, but um, yeah, so the Xbox Series S, I've been having a lot of fun um, just downloading some different stuff. Um, a few games came out on Game Pass super recently that I just downloaded. One of them is a remake of Myst, uh, mm. M-Y-S-T, which is uh, like a cult classic game where you come to this mysterious island um, and it's beautiful and you just kind of, it's like a, I'm pretty sure it's kind of like a walking simulator thing with mm-hmm. puzzles, puzzle elements, and you're trying to figure out the mystery of like why you're the only person on this island, what happened here um, before the game starts. So that game I'm really looking forward to. Kind of throwbacks because I downloaded Mist, I downloaded Psychonauts 2, um, mm-hmm. which I'm super excited to, to check out. Did you play Psychonauts 1? No, I've never played Psychonauts, but you okay. were telling me about it, and uh, it got me really interested. I don't know. Sorry, can you give the folks at home like a like a light Psychonauts <laughs> well, I've never, overview? I've never played it either, but I've definitely been hearing uh, good things about Psychonauts too, which is the uh, a long-awaited sequel. The first game came out in 2005 for PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Windows, so it's been quite a while since <laughs> over a decade. Wow. Yeah. It's been yeah, like wow. 16 years um, be- until the sequel came out. But from what I've heard, it's a, it's like a, it's a platforming game, but it deals with uh, folks who are psychic. So a lot of the game takes place inside of other characters' minds. Like you as the main character are entering the minds of other characters mm. and helping work through different things with them is like kind of my loose understanding of the game. So I've heard the like thematically, it's very interesting. And the I'm hearing a lot of good things about the sequel, uh, Psychonauts 2, which just came out like a week ago. Um, It is on Game Pass 2, which makes it a really easy pickup um, for someone (laughs) like myself and Spencer who have Game Pass. (laughs) I've heard that you can jump into Psychonauts 2 without playing the first one. And I've heard that the first one like is a product of its time in the sense that like, there's a lot of mechanic stuff that can be a little frustrating um, since it's so much older. So Mm. I haven't really decided if I'm going to go back and try the first one or just try Psychonauts 2 or when I'm even going to get to it, honestly, because there's just so many things to play and not enough hours in the day. Um, But yeah, I'm just really intrigued by it conceptually. And the sequel is getting a lot of really positive reviews. The games are made by Double Fine, um, who are that's tim schaefer they're known for making um really kind of quirky independent 
games. They were a studio that was independent for a long time until they uh, got purchased by Microsoft recently. Oh, interesting. I think that's especially interesting because um, for Double Fine, like the the first Psychonauts, um, it was, I mean, I have Wikipedia open in front of me, so I thought like I'm just pulling this <laughs> trivia out of my ass just, just so no, everyone come knows. On, don't ruin but, the um, illusion. <laughs> the illusion. Yeah, my, my podcasting genius. But um, it says when Psychonauts was first released in 2005, it was actually a commercial failure. Um, oh. and that might be why a lot of people haven't heard about it. Um, but it was it got incredibly um, an amazing critical reception, the characters and writing. Um, so it, it kind of really developed this cult following. And, and so hmm. similarly to you, Jamie, I'm I'm excited to kind of, I mean, I'm always happy to like with Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, um, like experience games that um, explore mental health, mental illness mm-hmm. in ways that aren't um, like alienating or mm-hmm. exploitative, um, but sort of embracing the ways that you know, mental illness and navigating it. It's like a journey and it, yeah. you need community and everyone has different strengths. And there's like, I'm just, I'm just interested to explore um, the game and the way that it, uh, the way that the game explores these topics. <laughs> yes. Same. same. Um, but over in PS5 land, um, <laughs> the uh, game that you and I have both been playing Mm-hmm. Is uh, <laughs> Ghost of Tsushima Director's Cut slash Iki Island. Yeah, I mean, some might say Ghost of Tsushima is like the poster game of this podcast because, <laughs> like, <laughs> so many episodes. I, I mean, it's been a minute since we mentioned yeah. it. I have to say, but we definitely had a tear there. Yeah, where it was like a running joke I to see if go. Ghost came up on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, but one of our favorite games from last year for sure. And it's back now. Uh it's back in a big way, baby. With a quote unquote director's cut edition, which is this branding thing that Sony's doing now where they mm. re-release a game from PS4 era on PS5 with some key updates and upgrades and potentially some new content. So they've done a few different games with this moniker now. Mm. Um I feel like Ghost is probably the most expansive upgrade. Uh, but mm. you know, people could tell me I'm wrong about that. But they they added a bunch <laughs> tell of stuff. Tell us he's wrong. I dare you. <laughs> Come on, tell me. Uh, so they added a bunch of stuff. It's got updated graphics. Um, it's got updated frame rate options. Um, aiming for 60 frames a set per second, which is mind boggling and eye boggling. It is eye boggling. Oh my god, this game buttery smooth. Yeah, and just gorgeous. Yeah, very very pretty on the PS5. And my 4K television. Um, it's got DualSense integration. So that's integration with the new PS5 controller that's got all that cool haptic feedback and special vibration. When you're on your horse, you can feel oh, each of yeah. the hooves hitting the yeah. ground through when, the controller. <laughs> it's okay. like very when impressive. Writing a haiku and the fucking throat singers are coming out of your controller. Yes. Like cool. <laughs> very it's cool. Just in the first time that happened, I wasn't expecting it. And when it started happening, um, like it's just just sorry for more context. There's these scenes in Ghost of Tsushima where um you come upon like a particularly beautiful uh area and you sit down on a little mat and you look around you at nature and you compose a haiku. Um and mm-hmm. the game has a really cool way of um 
uh, helping you compose the haiku, like you can look around to either the trees or the wind or the water and different lines of poetry will come to mind. And so you pick the ones that speak to you the most and then it'll put together a poem. Um, Jin, the Jin Sakai, the main character, he'll recite the poem. Um, it's kind of like a really meditative moment um, and you're really just taking in the the, the beauty of the nature in the game. Um, and I think it's a nice homage to the art of haiku as well, which is um, inspired by nature. And um, I don't know, it's just really beautiful. And there are the, there's like monks doing throat singing uh, throughout the, these periods of the game, um, which just, I mean, it just hits you right in the chest and um, it really, I find it really soothing and, and calming and um i i don't know i i fucking love this game and afterwards you get a headband <laughs> that's right you get a little headband <laughs> and you can wear it and um you have yeah <laughs> <laughs> i just love it yeah you have this beautiful moment you write the haiku and then it's like ding it like dings and it's like here you go you get a headband here's a fun headband <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you can wear now. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the the other thing that they added with the game, well, there's two other things worth mentioning. The the yeah. one I haven't really been using, but I think it's really important that they added it in, which is uh, with the power of the PS5. <laughs> mm. I'm not being paid to say that, but with the power <laughs> of the PS5, uh, the game devs uh, Sucker Punch, they were able to add lip sync, animated lip sync for the Japanese voice track which was not included in the original game yeah. despite them making such a big deal about the fact that the the game had a fully acted Japanese voice track. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big disappointment for a lot of folks that you could turn on the Japanese voice acting, but you the characters' mouths were not moving in sync with the the Japanese dialogue. Mm-hmm. So now that is that actually works on the PS5, which I think is great and really important. It seems like a small thing, but I think it's I think it's really important that they added yeah. that in for for everything that this game is supposed to be about. Yes. Um, but the thing that I've been getting a lot of use out of <clears throat> and has been really cool is the 3D audio mm-hmm. that they added in. So like the total sucker that I am. Uh, before Ratchet and Clank came out, they were talking up the 3D audio because PS5 now has the ability to three, 3D audio, like out of your speakers or in the, in the headphones. Well, if you so if you have speakers that can do 3D audio, great, they can yeah. do that. But specifically, the new PS5 headset uh, uh. is capable of 3D audio. So they were talking this up for Ratchet and Clank. So. I went and fucking bought one of these headsets. I was like, I got to see how this goes. Dude, I've never really been one to play games with headphones on yeah. very often. Um, mostly just because having headphones on bothers me after a certain point. It makes my ears sweaty. Um, yeah. But this headset has kind of changed my relationship to games. And so now when a game says it has the 3D audio, I'm busting out that headset and I'm having a fucking cinematic experience with Ghost of Tsushima right now. Fuck. It's it's really good. And and when I played the original game, I barely really noticed the soundtrack and how much the uh-huh. music plays into things. But having the headset on now, I'm just noticing the score. It has this really epic orchestral score mm. that that underplays everything that you're doing. And I'm noticing in a way that I was not noticing at all when I played it before. And yeah, the 3D audio when you're in fights and you hear you can hear the people behind you. Mm. <laughs> like you can hear the enemies <gasps> coming behind you. I, I don't know. It's just it's very, very cool and definitely one of the coolest things I think they added with this update. Immersive. Very immersive. Is this the Pulse 3D wireless headset? That sounds right. 
I tried great. clicking on it, but PlayStation website's not even loading, so I'm sure that everyone's buying it and I can't have it. But <laughs> I think it's a lot easier to get than the PS5 itself. So you should be able to get it if I'm going to talk you into another purchase video game purchase. Jamie just, like, honestly, they should start giving Jamie commissions because all of my video game-related purchases have been, like, Jamie's, like, this thing is cool. And I'm like, Jamie said it's cool. Google, give it to me. <laughs> um, well, have I steered you wrong yet? You know what? You have never steered me wrong. I think okay, you're the only so. person who's coerced me into purchases that I've, I've never regretted. So, <laughs> so there's that. Well, that's good. So, <laughs> I mean, hey, I, the whole reason I have a PS5 is thanks to you, so I can't complain. <laughs> that's right. I did help connect you with oh the God. sale. Um, uh, I, but, but yeah, what yeah. are you thinking? What are you thinking of Ghosts? And the expansion in Iki Island. So okay, I so I've I've <laughs> I've just really been sinking my teeth into it. I will say, coming back to Ghost of Tsushima after like so many months of not a little rough. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, do I even know how to pick up a sword? <laughs> like, what are all these I am stances? not a real samurai. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I am the most embarrassing hero of Tsushima ever. Like. Um, and I, I went to Iki Island like pretty much immediately cause I was so excited. Um, but the combat is definitely like harder on the Island. And so the combination of that with my rustiness has been mm-hmm. kind of hilariously awful to witness. <laughs> um, just getting straight up murdered. Yeah. Just by murdered. These Mongols. these Mongols, uh, they're ready to throw hands and I am not, um, Colt's just listening to me scream at the TV. Yeah. I hit the parry window yeah oh my god the fucking parrying is so hard (laughs) which i don't remember it being before like i remember being like pretty damn good at parrying and dodging and getting the like hitting it at exactly the right moment so that they do this thing in combat (laughs) where enemies will come at you with different attacks and there's a little symbol that appears to let you know if it's an attack you can parry or if it's an attack that you have to dodge Mm -hmm. and if you get the timing of your dodge or parry exactly right it will slow down time and give you an opportunity for a very uh, aggressive, like a very aggressive Satisfying. and like, hard hitting attack. Yeah. A lot of times a one hit kill yeah. on the enemy. And I can't hit these fucking parry and dodge windows to save my life. Mm-mm. Can't hit them to save my life. So now I'm just running over everybody with my horse, which is a new yes. skill that you've. I've- <laughs> I feel like that was very strategically added in there. Like, people are going to forget how to play this game. We've got to give them, we got to give them a win. It's like, if you can't get the parry and dodge windows, just get on your horse and bull these motherfuckers Just bulldoze them. And they go flying. It's honestly kind of comical. It's awesome. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, I was going to say, too, like, I guess one nice thing is that um, they've added some expanded options in terms of gameplay where um, they've added like an aim assist and um, there's one where you can check this box and it gives you like a more forgiving parry window. Um, So I noticed that I haven't turned them on yet because I was like, that's my last resort because I want (laughs) to get back into this. But um, I appreciated that as well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they also added, I think they added this actually before the director's cut expansion, okay. but I, well, no, those, those things might be new. Sorry, I'm talking about mm. the, the other thing that they added is uh, that you can create gear sets. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that. So in the original game, you have all these different outfits that give you different perks and you can switch around those, but your core, um, are they called charms? Yes. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, You have a core set of charms that give you certain 
benefits, whatever you, you accrue all these different charms for doing different missions and stuff in the game, but they they give you all these different perks. Um, that had to be set in stone. So whatever your charms were, those were your charms, even though you could swap out your armor. So it didn't really give you a way to like have specific builds. Like maybe you want to be beefed up in certain ways when you're going in and fighting stealth. But when you're out exploring the open world, you want to be set up to mm-hmm. have things that make your map open up quicker or help you find uh, collectibles easier. Right. So you were kind of locked into a build mm-hmm. in the base game unless you wanted to be constantly going in and changing things. Um, so I think they actually added this to the game shortly after release, but we'd mm. already beaten it by this point. But yeah, they have these gear options now. So you can set up an outfit and attach all of the charms to the outfit, and then you can just easily swap between those things based on what you want to do. That's been a really nice uh, nice thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just nice quality of life upgrades and kind of efficiency. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to replay because it feels like a new game. Um, in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, I will say too, so just on the more emotional side of things, like, um, I was, I was reminded how much I was affected when I finished Ghost of Stream for the first time. I, I remember, um, I think I talked about this in the, in a previous episode, but like, I was kind of a mess after I finished that game. I, I cried a lot. I was kind of, I, I cried like on and off for like a day just thinking about the game um i think i just really connected emotionally with with jen as a hero um and the game just covered so many themes of like familial trauma Mm-mm, and not mm-hmm. living up to your parents expectations and kind of having to define um and accept yourself uh, as you are, and that being the first step towards like healing and independence and fulfilling your destiny or however you want to think about it. Um, and I was particularly thinking about it this week. Um, I was in therapy uh, uh, this earlier this week. Um, but I've been doing this cool thing. I th- I don't know if I've already talked about this, but I've been doing water therapy. Um, and what I do is once a week, I, I meet my therapist out on this lake uh, in the mountains of Western Massachusetts. And we go out on paddle boards, um, which are kind of, (laughs) when I said paddle board, my partner was imagining that I was on like a tiny little boogie board, like when you're at swimming practice kicking along. But a paddle board is like a big and long, like like, kind of like the size of a kayak. Um, And they're actually easier to balance on than a kayak. Uh, They have a really low center of gravity and they're really um, buoyant. Um, And it's like a flat surface that you can sit or stand on and you you have a paddle and you row yourself through the water. Um, And so it's a really nice way to connect with nature um, and and just a way that grounds me when I'm talking about some really hard stuff. Um, And something we were talking about was um, I was expressing just how I feel like nothing I can do will ever really um, make my parent happy. Um, I largely um, am not, like my autonomy and, and my boundaries are not respected. I'm not seen as a whole person. I'm seen as an extension of my parent. Um, and it's created a very painful relationship because um, I think in a, lo- in a lot of ways, I thought that as an adult, um, uh, especially after coming out as trans, which was something that really um, drove 
distance between my parent and I. Um, uh, like I would say the first couple, I've been out maybe five years and the first couple years, it was like, you know, you're dead to me. You're a monster. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to hear about it. I like my daughter is dead. Um, like, you know, just the kind of painful, overtly violent stuff that you might hear. And then about two years in, that stopped. Um, but so did everything else. Like, my parent doesn't ask me how I'm doing. Um, they're not invested in what I've been up to. They're not proud of me. They're not, um, they don't seem to care at all. Um, and that almost hurts more because it feels like they've just completely sort of um, just cut me out of even their realm of care um because of something uh that's totally on them not on me um and so i thought in a lot of ways like um if i did the things that they thought i would no longer be able to give them because of my transness like having a good job having a happy relationship having a house having a life i thought if i got all of those things that they would see and they would be happy for me and that uh, we could, you know, continue our relationship. Um, but instead, what I've seen uh, is that they don't care. <laughs> um, it's done nothing to change how they feel. And so what my, and, and I blame myself. I carry a lot of guilt. I, I tell them, I invalidate myself. I tell myself, you have no, like, this is, it's your fault. Uh, there's something wrong with you. You're not lovable. Um, you know, I, I tell those things to myself that my parent had said to me over and over and over again. And I was telling this, all this to my therapist um, about how I've been struggling with anxiety, about how um, I'm guilty and, and, and I'm in pain. Um, and she stopped me and was like, well, how else would you expect to feel? Um, she was like, you know, when we are children, children are selfish. Children, because they don't have, they haven't developed enough to have a theory of mind and and uh, understand that other people exist entirely separately from them. And so, what happens is when a child, something bad happens to a child, the child assumes that it's their fault in some way. Um, that that they must have done something to create the bad, the bad thing, like the parent being mad at them or the parent abusing them. It must be because of the child, because the child is unable to conceive that the parent would um, hurt them for a, a reason on the parent's side, not because of the child. And so she's saying to me, like, your inner child is, that's your inner child's voice coming out, telling you that these things are your fault because that child has been raised to believe that way. And you as a rational adult, you know, deep down that it's not you, you know, deep down that your parent um, is uh, behaving in a way that is not fair and toxic to you. And you also know that you deserve boundaries and you have a support system. You have a good life. Like, you know, all of these things are true. Um, but because no one was there to teach that child that their feelings were okay to have, like, of course, that still comes out and it needs to be healed. And so to bring it back to Ghost of Tsushima. <laughs> Damn. Um, I think that this story really resonated because Jin is grappling constantly with the acute trauma of, as a child, watching his father die in front of him mm -hmm. and then also having to carry the expectation of knowing that his father had 
doubts about Jin's strength, that his father um, at times said paint hurtful things to or about Jin that Jin internalized and still grapples with as an adult. Like even though mm-hmm. he's the hero of Tsushima, even though he's like the greatest samurai alive, he still mm-hmm. feels weak and he still feels ashamed and he still carries so much guilt. And um, I think I just identify a lot with this character and um, in this expansion, Iki Island, um, I think something it's doing is, um, you know, really bringing to the fore that yes, we shape, we save Tsushima in the, in the core game and that story is over, but Jin still has this deep childhood trauma that he's carrying and that's affecting him to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, How is he going to grow through and past that, and how is he going to accept himself as the child who was defenseless, that it was not his fault that his father died and that he couldn't save him. He was a defenseless child that could do nothing but hide and run. And that's okay. Um, I think the hardest thing that I've that I'm learning that I'm that really where the work is gonna come in therapy is my therapist was straight up with me, like, your parent is not gonna change you're never going to get the love that you deserve from that parent. You're never going to have the relationship that you yearn for. You have to accept and love yourself in a way that a parent never will. And you have to accept that. You have to accept that it needs to come from you. You have to stop expecting it to come from them. And she was like, you know, I'm not saying this to you. because I know it's painful to hear. I'm not saying this to you in a way that's meant to make you feel bad. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's just true that, that it, it's never gonna, I'm never gonna get that validation. Um, and so I think I just, that's part of the reason why I love this character in this game so much, because um, in a way that's entirely different, you know, it's in this world, in this situation of um, fetal Japan, <laughs> um, but it still really carries through those themes. Um, and I think it explores trauma in a way that just really resonates with me, with childhood trauma and the the guilt that we carry as uh coming from you know like asian cultures that really um like where parental influence and the connection of family and the duty there um is one that can be really hard to navigate around Mm -hmm. especially when you are um like the child of an immigrant growing up in an american context which is particularly individualistic um Mm -hmm. it just brings up a lot that's relatable to me, um, both as like someone who went through childhood trauma and specifically as someone uh, of within an, an Asian culture. Yeah. And I know you haven't, uh, you haven't finished the storyline of Iki Island yet. I right? have not. No. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> I, yeah, keep playing. Cause I think, <laughs> I think that, uh, I have, I have some issues with the way they move the story of Iki Island forward, specifically mm-hmm. some of the stuff they do with the villain. I just don't find that it's, this has a, I don't think it's spoilering to say this, but the villain that's on Iki Island, um, very early in the content, um, poisons Jin, and this contributes to him having hallucinations, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the storyline about his past. And that kind of like as a trope didn't 
mm. work super well for me as like the met like I feel like he could have been having like very yeah. real memories about Iki Island and his history there and his history specifically in the context of his relationship with his father that all could have been very thoroughly explored without the kind of gimmicky like sniveling mm-hmm. villain yeah, like yeah. talking through all of it that that part my magic poison <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> my god no shame no shade to the voice actor but that is almost like what <laughs> we're getting in this which is just yeah. kind of like sad because i think that there's a really uh like interesting uh, and yeah. i don't know and again like so much of the main game is about jen's relationship to his uncle who essentially yes. raised him after his father's death or murder i guess you could say um but so so the main game doesn't really deal with Jin's relationship to his actual parents, mm-hmm. his mother and father, almost at all. And there's both like the main story of Iki Island, which deals heavily with his relationship to his father and what happened with his father on Iki Island and why he's been so afraid to even like why the main game doesn't touch it at all. You see these weird flashbacks in the main game, but never really get the full story of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um so I thought that was super cool. And then there's a lot of side content on Iki Island where Jin is like talking about his mother and his relationship with his mother who died when he was very young and who he was very close to. And so I thought all of that was was really cool and additive. And I think, you know, especially with everything you're saying about your own experiences and and how I, I think the story's gonna hit pretty yeah. pretty heavily. Yeah. And I think like because it's so different, like, you know, Jin's father is dead, which that's yeah. what brings the immutable like he too can't change the situation he's in all he can do is change yeah. himself similar to me like there's just there's parallels there but it's mm-hmm. not the same situation which i think is right. good because if yeah. it was the same situation it would be like too hard for me to to mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. um so i guess i just you know back to why we love games i think just giving you these tools to kind of think about apply what you learn in this experience to your own life and and a a tool for reflection. I just feel like that's kind of what healing from trauma is all about is, is like the, just the practice and exposure and um, the intentionality of like truly looking at yourself and accepting yourself as you are not trying to like, I, I think that I used to mistake the ways I would be like, stop feeling this way. Like you don't deserve to feel this way or you're a bad person or or whatever. Like, like those, that self-talk, I didn't even interpret it as negative because I thought of that as just how I would self-soothe and calm down. And it's really taken therapy to make me look at that and be like, actually, no, I need to interrupt those that I need to interrupt that self-talk because it's not okay. I just think it's normal because that's what I'm used to growing up, Mm -hmm. but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's okay. It just means that that's what my normal is. And no wonder I'm like this. (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah i am really loving entering back into ghost um i'm excited to to complete the arc um and uh and yeah thanks for giving me the space to talk about that a little bit (laughs) of course anytime so tell me about necrobarista uh, yeah, so Necro Barista, I've been playing, uh, in addition to Ghost of Tsushima, I've been playing Necro Barista, the final pour edition, which is specifically, uh, it's, it's also kind of a director's cut that's come to <laughs> oh. Switch. So Necro Barista is a visual novel that came out last year, yeah, 2020, uh, on PC. Uh, it's developed by Australian development studio Route 59. Um, and then the final pour edition uh, includes some updates to the game and released it for the first time on console. So now it's on Switch. 
the updates that they made to the game, they did upgraded visuals, uh, cinematic aspect ratio, and they added a couple new modes that I didn't really engage with too much, but maybe other folks will find them fun. They're creative modes. So one lets you mm-hmm. like draw uh, things that can appear in the game and the other oh. mode adds a studio mode where you can actually play and create scenes in Necrobarista's uh, engine. What? Yeah, so they're really interesting like creative additions for a game like this that I wouldn't have expected, but yeah, and then the, the final poor edition also includes uh, two store- side stories that were released as DLC to the original game, mm. um, which focus on like some customers, but but let me like give you the setup yeah. for Necro Barista. So Necro Barista is a visual novel, um, but it's told in a way or it's presented in a way that's completely different from any visual novel that I've ever played in that it has a very almost cinematic quality to it. Mm. Um, I think typically with visual novels, we're presented with some stand like we have a set uh, drawing of the character on the screen placed with whatever other character is speaking and a box that has text at the bottom of it. Right. That's a pretty standard visual novel layout. And then you kind of click through the text. Yeah. Uh, in Necrobarista, every single scene, every single uh, bit of text is positioned uh, in a completely different like scene. So the characters might be moving. You get these really cinematic mm. shots where like two characters are like sitting at a bar and the camera is like foot way behind them. And the dialogue mm. is like appearing above their heads. Um, and, and every single line of dialogue, every time you're clicking a, that, that camera position is constantly moving. So mm. it, it takes a lot of inspiration from, from anime <laughs> as well in terms of the art and design and kind of the, the focus areas. There's a lot of shots of feet and people walking in and out of areas, <laughs> There's like a little bit of movement. Sometimes the words will um, appear kind of one at a time on the screen to like emphasize how someone is delivering a line. So it's got all these little elements that make it way more immersive for me anyway than a traditional visual novel and make it way more cinematic. Cool. It feels uh, kind of like a half step between watching a show, like watching an anime and reading a visual novel. There's no voice acting or anything in it, though. It is still all text. It's also... But it's not like a game with visual novel elements. It is a visual novel. You're not making choices. You're not influencing the story in any way. You're just reading the dialogue between the characters. In between the chapters, you can kind of explore the game world and find these things called memories that are almost like mm-hmm. novel-esque blocks of text that give you like additional background or additional like side stories that occur occur in the world. But what is the world? So... <laughs> the main story of the game centers on, I would say, two main characters uh, named Maddie and Che, who are owning and operating a cafe called The Terminal that sits in between the, the real human world and the afterlife. It's a stop on the route for spirits moving on to the afterlife. Mm. And spirits that are in transition can choose to spend up to 24 hours on the terminal grounds uh, in in their real bodies. They can be oh. corporeal, right? Isn't that the word? Like if you have a they, form? Yeah. Corp, cofor, cof, it cof? is corporeal, but I was going to try and do like a coffee <laughs> pun. Corporeal. Yeah. They're in their bodies. They're but they can't they can't be killed. They can experience okay. pain. They can feel things. They can experience pleasure, all of that. They can drink a coffee. Um, the cafe also serves uh alcohol 
later in the day so they can Voice. they can get wasted one last <laughs> one last around the last 24 hours but they're stuck on the terminal grounds so Damn. you're in this limbo uh liminal space uh you can't go see your loved ones and see mm. what they might need to do or see what's happening with them you can't go back and try to figure out how you die most of the spirits mm. who arrive here they really don't remember their last moments they're not quite sure what happened so they're a little out of sorts um, but yeah, the idea is that they can stay there for up to 24 hours. If they try to stay longer, it becomes physically uncomfortable for them. Um, and also like in this world that they've built, there's an entity called the council that mm. is, uh, that has basically agents that are tasked with enforcing the balance, quote unquote, the balance. So if people overstay how long they're supposed to be in this liminal space, then it, it contributes to like this negative accrual of hours. Ugh, it's like death cops in this game? Yeah, basically. Basically. I would say they're more bureaucrats than cops. They're not <laughs> weaponized. <laughs> but they are enforcers, right? And one of the other main characters in the game is actually, it's Ned Kelly, who is an Australian like folk hero. Oh. Um, but he, in, in this uh, envisioning of him, he's one of these bureaucrats. Like, uh. he lived his life um, as a rebel, and now he's become this, this company bureaucrat um, basically pushing pencils and making sure that people don't overstay their hours. Um, but when people do overstay their hours, that counts against the terminal's balance. So okay. you come into the story um, following a, a freshly dead person named Kashan, mm. and he arrives at the terminal. He's confused, and he's kind of our conduit for understanding the world because Maddie and Chair are kind of explaining to him, this is what's going on with you, buddy. Like, it's okay to feel kind of out of sorts and confused right now. Let's get you a coffee. Mm-hmm. Um the terminal can be visited by real people too, so it's accessible to live humans. <laughs> and Do they know that people are dead? Yeah, they know that some people might be dead, but there's like rules on the door that you're never supposed to ask if someone <laughs> is dead or not. <laughs> so if someone wants to keep it to themselves uh, yeah. that they're a spirit and that they're going to need to pass on, then they can. So it's 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 this interesting, interesting thing where the people who come here are looking for transient interactions, right? Because you never know if someone might be leaving. Sounds gay. And never coming back. <laughs> it definitely, there's definitely like queer characters I'm and stuff in the at game. The dead bar. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, so then then it follows the story and you very quickly become aware that uh, Maddie and Che have accrued a uh, pretty significant debt with the council because they've let too many people stay past their time. Okay. Um, and they're not forcing people to leave the terminal when they're supposed to leave and letting spirits kind of stay until they're ready to move on. Mm. Um, that kind of sets up this whole really interesting story. I don't want to spoil anything. I do think people should play this game. I think it's like three to five hours. It took me like 30 because I was playing it while mm. watching a puppy. So I was constantly like having to get up and take the dog out to the bathroom, <laughs> stop him from chewing on shoes, those yeah, kinds yeah. of things. So it made my game clock a lot longer than it should be. But I think in actual play, it's like maybe five-ish hours. Um, the story, I think, you know, it's probably pretty obvious to see like what kind of themes the story touches on. We're talking about like learning how to let go, learning how to move on from things, learning how to like reconcile the fact that something is changing and you can't do anything about it. Um, Mm. But there's also like this idea of like how neutral bureaucracy like turns people into kind of cold, heartless (laughs) bastards. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's in there too with the stuff with the council and kind of how their neutrality 
Like, even though these bureaucrats aren't, you know, Ned is not an evil character and he doesn't see himself as an evil character, but there's a heartlessness to the way the bureaucracy is enforced. Mm -hmm. I, there's points in the game where he's even telling the characters, he's like, why don't you put on the sign that people only have 23 hours to be here? That way they'll get up and leave before their time. And then if people are like dragging their heels, they're still out of here by the 24 hour mark. And it's, it's like all those kind of little, I don't know, you've, you, it resonated for me as someone who like deals in a world of policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly trying to figure out how to get people to do what we want them to do. And just that, that way of like, how dehumanizing yeah. things become when you start creating all of these policies and procedures and, and Maddie and chair very much coming at it from the perspective of like, well, we're not going to kick somebody out because if they're still processing the fact that they're dead and they still feel like they need more time here, then we're going to let them have that time. Um, and we don't really see how that's hurting anything. And and you never really understand, like mm. the council and Ned are just constantly saying like, well, there's the balance and we have to enforce the balance, but there's no why behind that. It's not really articulated like what happens, like what would actually happen. And so Maddie kind of has this more rebel persona of like, well, I don't really know what will, since we can't articulate what bad will happen if the balance is upset, then why are we stressing about this? Right. Who is the system serving and... Like, are we even questioning that? It doesn't even matter. Or have we just accepted that this is the way the world works? Exactly. So the game does kind of this meta narrative world building really well. I think all of the dialogue is so incredibly well written. The interactions between the characters are so fully formed from the minute they like come into a scene. I just I really, really fell for all the characters that they show us in this game. Even even Ned as the bureaucrat, like I felt like he was very well presented and it was very clear who he was. And they give you moments where you do feel for him and like his position that he's in. So the game does a really good job of humanizing all of the characters that they have in there. Um, there is more to the story that I'm kind of leaving out right now that you slowly uncover, but it's got kind of this mystery that perpetuates through most of the game. And when you finally realize what's actually happening, it was a, a bit of a surprise to me. And, and it was also like really heartbreaking <laughs> by the end ah. of the game. I was like full on sobbing, but it was also a sob of like, this game is very much about like understanding that even though you might be someone who is doing something very well and doing it for the right reasons that doesn't mean that you may have like may not have overstayed your time there hmm. um or that it may still be time for you to move on that even if you're doing the right thing there's still a point where you have to step away and let younger folks <laughs> more diverse so, i don't know it just like resonated hmm. for me on this level of like thinking about like how we hold power and influence and as someone who I guess I guess I'm relating a lot of this to my work right now and where I sit in my work. And mm -hmm. I've been there for a long time and I've worked up to a certain position. But at what point is it my responsibility to let go of it and step away and let folks who are younger and hungrier than me, who have new ideas, who are more have more diverse perspectives come into the space? Like, when is it right for folks to say, I've been here long enough and I've influenced this long enough and I need to step back and let some other voices, let new fresh people get into the space. And so it, it had this, this storyline going through it, this theme going through it that really resonated with me personally for where I'm at in my life. But it was also just really moving to think about 
uh, cycles of change that yeah. way, especially as someone who like really fears change mm. stories that are about like learning how to take the next step to whatever's next for you are really powerful for, for me personally. Wow. I love that. I'm downloading it. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, like I was, the line by line writing is so fucking good. Like there, there's parts of this game that, that literally feel like you're, you're reading a novel. Hmm. Um, especially when you're doing some of the the first person exploration and the interstitials between the chapters, you basically find as you're walk, you can like walk through the cafe and explore different things, and you come across highlighted objects that you can interact with, and then they'll just present blocks of text on the screen that you hmm. can read through like a story. It's like these little short stories. Wow. Um, so it's really a it's a super liter literary game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that the right word? Literary. Yeah. It's like reading literature. And as <laughs> someone who doesn't like used to love to read, but like hardly ever has the focus for it anymore, I really appreciated it. It felt like reading a really good book, but it was presented in a way that was able to hold my attention dynamic and interactive yeah yeah cool the soundtrack i have to shout out the soundtrack too the soundtrack is so cool it like oscillates between music that like keyboard music that you feel like you would absolutely hear in a cafe and like more intense like kind of trancey techno vibe music Mm. it's made by kevin penkin who i didn't know this before but he also did the he was also the composer for florence which Mm. is a really really good mobile game if folks have played that Um, about a relationship falling apart so yeah necrobarista i highly recommend it the one complaint that i could probably levy levy towards it is that because of the dynamic way they present the text on the screen there are times that the text was challenging to read okay i did find some settings in the options menu that let me like create more of an outline for the text and add more shadow to it but it's even with that turned on it it made a big difference but there were still times that it was i i think you know i don't have any visual impairments but i think it could be challenging um for someone who who might have more trouble mm. reading text on a screen. I also played this mostly on my television. Mm. Um, so I don't, I, I think even if you make the text smaller on the switch screen, it may have been even more challenging to read at times. Mm. Um, and it chugged a little bit on the switch. I don't think mm. <laughs> the switch hardware is quite up to par to be able to run this, even though it's a visual novel, it's got a lot going on with all of the scenes that are built out and the way they designed the game. So wow. yeah, really but, cool. But the fact that it's accessible on Switch, I think, was great, and I was able to play it, and I got through it. It crashed once or twice on me, but it never, like, lost so much progress that it was frustrating or anything. Yeah, it wasn't where the heart leads. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that level of frustration, <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, let's transition over to our guest for today. Yeah. Our guest today is Anna Anthropy, a video and role-playing game designer, author, and game designer in residence at DePaul University College of Computing and Digital Media in Chicago. We spoke with Anna at length about her experiences working with students of game design, in particular, all the ways she's attempting to prepare them for the worst aspects of the industry while not replicating any of those practices herself. We also talk about her first book, Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, which was published in 2012, the things that drive her own interest in game design, and the importance of making game design and development accessible for small individual stories told by independents and hobbyists. 
It was a really illuminating conversation. As someone who's been making and thinking about games for decades and is now actively involved in fostering future generations of game makers, we found Anna's perspective incredibly valuable, and we were grateful for the conversation and her time. So without further ado, here's our interview with Anna Anthropy. to our wonderful guests. And thank you so much for joining us in the Pixel Therapy Studio. To start, would you mind sharing your name, your pronouns, and just a little bit about how you've been spending your time? Hi, I'm Anna Ann Anthropy, um, pronouns she, her. Um, I have been, well, lately I've been splitting my time between moving and back surgery. <laughs> so that's Oh my fun. goodness. Uh, real, <laughs> real hot girl summer vibes over here. Yeah, seriously. Wow. Well, thank you for joining us post back surgery. I hope that the recovery is swift and going smoothly. Yeah, it's 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 better today than it was yesterday. So I'm hoping that trend continues. Absolutely. And Anna, um, you're a game designer in residence at DePaul University's College of Computing and Digital Media. I was wondering if wow, you could my tell full us. Title. Yeah, <laughs> I'll drop that full title because um, it sounds like a dream job. And I was curious if you could just tell us a little bit about what that looks like in action. Like, how do you spend your time? What does your research involve? Um, so. I split my time between, um, you know, I, I teach classes, uh, of course. Um, I kind of teach at all levels of the program. Um, we have, um, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be teaching, you know, freshmen, uh, this mm. incoming, um, you know, this coming fall. Uh, but I also, we have an MFA program. Um, which is one of the kind of the few game design MFA programs uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, teach MFA students as well. Um, I've been developing classes uh, focused around narrative design uh, and RPG design, which I'm really excited to teach in person uh, for the first time yeah. uh, this year. Because uh. um, previously they've only been taught remotely. Um, yeah, so I spent my time between doing that, teaching classes, and between advising, uh, which is a full-time job. I have, like, over 70 students I advise. Um, wow. Because, yeah, uh, which is big, uh, like a big project because they're all terrified of the world that we live in (laughs) and the job market that they're going into. Mm. Um, Yeah. Um, And in the kind of cracks in between all of that, I try and find some time to uh, do my own, uh, you know, my own game design and development, my own uh, practice, if you will. Um, I don't, I don't get a lot of it done, but occasionally <laughs> I manage to squeeze something out and that feels pretty good. <laughs> That's awesome. And just from what I've read in your writing, like you are someone who uh, 
I would say earlier in your career really had to carve a space um, for yourself and, and didn't always have the best experience uh, in your own time um, going to school to make games and trying to, to learn um, and in a you know university setting um, how to make games and so I'm wondering like as a as a teacher now as a professor now of gaming. <laughs> professor of gaming that sounds <laughs> professor of video games professor of video games yes um, like what kind of what are you bringing to your practice that is different from what you like like how how are you trying to sort of create a different learning environment yeah so it's it's really fun to be a professor of video games because I'm a college dropout um as you like kind of alluded to I've both dropped out of and been kicked out of college. <laughs> I was, you know, I was asked to leave a game design program for, because it essentially, because it was a very business oriented mm. game design program. They were really um, into, and this was at the uh, guild hall at SMU. Mm. Uh, I'm comfortable. I, you know, I famously wrote a book where I named them. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, and they were really interested in placements. They were really interested mm. in um, having students, uh, get, you know, all their students will get to work in the industry um, and work for, you know, big name studios and work on big projects that they'll hate. Um, mm. And one of the ways in which they kind of facilitated that is that they had students in, in kind of in crunch time, like 24 seven, like it was just like a ridiculous work pace that was crushing and was intended to be um, because it was intended to like desensitize you wow. to, yeah, to like the worst practices of the games industry. Um, and so that, um, that <laughs> is a, a thing that I'm trying really hard not to replicate. Um and I think I think that we do kind of replicate some of those toxic practices in ways that maybe don't seem obvious. Uh, like one of the one of the kind of conversations we've uh, had going uh, back and forth for uh, you know for the past. I'll say five years because that's how long I've been at my school um, is a conversation about whether to host game jams um, mm. because to some extent, like, you know, we um, DePaul hosts the global game jam or, mm. you know, a chapter of the global game jam, I guess, which is a 48 hour jam where folks like show up and work, you know, find a project where kind of pretty much nonstop. Um, yeah. until they're done um and so yeah we have conversations every year about like it, if we are ho if we're hosting this are we tacitly endorsing um like a crunch mentality um what are our obligations to students in that situation um how do we prevent how do we make sure that students are not just like spending the night working on their projects um how how we make sure they're like getting sleep um mm. when the projects the you know the game jam itself kind of incentivizes them to right, neglect absolutely. those things mm. um yeah and on top of that you know in addition to that i try and um i try and bring in 
labor organizers to talk to students. I've had members of the local chapter of Game Workers Unite come in. Um, a lot of a lot of my personal approach to, um, I mean, I could talk about my pedagogy, but I think one of the big things for me is making sure that I don't replicate the kind of toxic practices that I was exposed to when I went, when I attempted to go to game design school um, and making sure that students understand that crunch isn't normal and should not be normalized and that, that, that they should expect better when they get into the industry. Absolutely. Talk a lot about unions. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And there should be more talk of unions in in game making Mm -hmm. spaces. I mean, look at what, like every day it feels like you see some new horror come out of some. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's, it's actually really sad. Um, Every, you know, I talked, I mentioned this freshman class that I'm going to be teaching, which I uh, teach fairly regularly. Um, we have every quarter, uh, every time I teach it, we'll have one uh, class where I'm like, where I'll, I will take something from the news and be like, okay, let's talk about why this happened, what this says about the industry, how we like, how we create an industry where this doesn't happen. And I don't plan it; it's not in the syllabus. I just wait until something happens that's <laughs> relevant. I wait until a studio lays off its entire workforce Uh, or, you know, claims of, of, you know, an entire studio having a, you know, sexist work culture uh, come mm. out and inevitably every quarter there is an opportunity to, to, to have that class. There is always something like as sure as clockwork. Wow. I mean, do you does teaching freshmen and seeing these newer folks coming into the game making space like does it give you hope for the future? Um, God, what future? Um, no, that's a bit... <laughs> it's it's a it's a really it's a really mixed experience because I because I do I do love my children um, <laughs> and I want them to succeed. Um, and have, you know, I want them to have the the best, you know, opportunities, the best world, the best careers. But at the same time, I want to be honest with them that, like, it's going to be, an, it's a very an uphill battle to, to, to get that. Um, especially, you know, the, 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 and the students who tend to find them, who, who tend to resonate the most in you know with my classes and my approach to teaching tend to be Mm. students who are marginalized Mm. um and it's you know i i know as i as i teach them you know i know they're gonna have the hardest time um existing in this in this um in this industry and may fail based on you know, things that are completely outside of their control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's, it's really, I would say it's really tough balancing those two things, balancing like my love of these students with the knowledge and the honesty about the fact that, you know, 
it's gonna be it's gonna be rough for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they and they un- they understand. I mean, this is the thing they understand that the industry is real bad. Um, so I think that. I feel like they would get suspicious if I didn't talk about how <laughs> <laughs> the ways in right. which it's bad. Yeah, um, yeah. If you didn't keep it real, with like them. students, like every time you know, every time we have one of those conversations in my freshman class, I find like students have so much to say that they've been like, so they have so many anxieties that they've been waiting for just to be asked to give an opportunity to you know to to, to vocalize, um, and so. Students are already, they already have a sense of what they're up against. And I try not to, no, I I try and be honest with them that like, yes, you're right to be scared. It's extremely fucked up. It shouldn't be. Um, We can think about how we get to, you know, an industry that's less fucked up, but like, Mm -hmm. it's bad and it's good that you understand that it's bad. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So to back up a little bit, um, what's your personal history and relationship with video games? Do you identify as a gamer? Oh my God, no. <laughs> um, that, no, I, I am not a gamer. Yeah. Um, I, I have been, I have been a lot of things. Um, my, my kind of start in Commercial game development was as a Flash game developer. Um, I used to develop. Uh, I used to develop games for Newgrounds. Um, mm, yeah. I I mean I exclusively developed games for Newgrounds for pay. I didn't. I I didn't just like learn Flash um, through like posting movies on Newgrounds or anything like mm-hmm. a lot of people did. I made games, which I sold to Tom Folt because I wanted money. <laughs> um, uh, and at that time, you know, that was kind of at the height of the flash bubble. So there was a lot mm. of, there was a lot of money there, you know, mm. um, I ended up, you know, I, you know, I worked with adult swim. Um, there were, this was like the, the money grew fat on the trees uh, at this <laughs> point. Um, and then the flash bubble burst and uh, it became harder <laughs> to um, became harder to find uh, I don't know, the commercial sponsorship for mm. my work, which has always kind of just remained really weird. I've had like a very hard time working on projects that aren't interesting to me. Mm. And a lot of things, like a lot of things aren't interesting to me. Um, which is ultimately why I ended up um, shifting to teaching. Um, just because it was, it was really, for a long time, it was a struggle to do the kind of work that I was doing and also have things like healthcare. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the short version of it. As someone who doesn't identify vehemently, does not identify as a gamer. Um, what drove you to keep making games? Um, curiosity, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is, Games are 
I'm trying not to trying not to begin this intersection or trying not to begin the sentence with games are at the intersection of <laughs> which I feel like is a, a sentence I've, I've said so many times um, but I just find uh, in games I find the echo of a lot of uh, a lot of experiences that are texturally really meaningful to me um, you know, I think of I think of ritual. I think of magic. I think of you know. I think of tarot. I think of kink. Um, all of these, all these ex- these very you know textured experiences. Um, I think are really close to and adjacent to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for me play has always been an interesting way to explore those kinds of experiences um, and to provide to provide experiences that have that have the you know that texture of interactivity um, I don't know for 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 me that has never stopped being fully interested interesting um, although like Games are not have not ever been the only thing that I've made. Um, and I don't think that games are, you know, I very much don't believe in the kind of the ludic cent- century approach w- where, mm-hmm. you know, games are somehow the most interesting art form and, you know, the most relevant one and everything that we are saying we should be saying, uh, you know, somehow through a game. Um mm-hmm. I, you know, I like to choose a medium that or a form that is appropriate to the thing I have to say. It just so happens that a lot of the things that I I want to say, um, I find compelling ways to say them through interactivity and through play. Definitely. And speaking of um, like tarot and ritual, um, you've recently released um, a series of games that are solo journaling games, uh, one of which is Princess with a Cursed Sword. Um, and you can play this these games with a tarot deck. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the mechanics at play in these games. Um, and like, what is a solo journaling game? So these games are, they're essentially tabletop role-playing games that you play with yourself. Um, and in, you know, in a, in a tabletop role-playing game, there are, there are kind of multiple layers to what's going on. There's like the mechanical layer where you're, you know, rolling dice or listening to the rules. And then there's the narrative layer, which is where you and the other players are kind of constructing a shared narrative of what's going on in the game based on kind of what the mechanics are saying. Um, and those two layers kind of feed into each other. Um, and, uh, solo game development experience, um, the journaling aspect, the kind of writing down the story kind of takes, takes the role of, it, it takes the space of that talking, that collaboratively building the world, um, because that's the moment at which kind of this, the narrative that you're, you're constructing is going from your head into the page, um, mm-hmm. So it's like a, 
it's a it's a way of kind of encoding the narrative that you're telling that I think is super mindful. Like I think the experience mm-hmm. of like whether it's you know whether you're sitting down and, and writing in a notebook with a with a pen or whether you're doing in a Google Doc, I think the experience of transcribing that narrative to words and thinking about you know thinking about word choice, thinking about all the things we think about when we uh, when we write fiction um, is just like super pleasurable and, and interesting. And, um, you know, in the case of princess with a cursed sword, which is a game kind of about telling, uh, telling or writing, uh, a, a fairy tale. It's really central that, you know, part of the, part of the, the transformation of that game is the fact that you are kind of transcribing, this fairy tale as you're playing mm. um and so you know that game plays with um plays with perspective and stuff in the in the journaling aspect you know that's a game that uh, unlike a lot of role-playing games um you're you're writing about what's happening to your character in third person um as though you are you know, as, as though you are transcribing like a story that may, you know, maybe was passed down through oral tradition or something. Yeah. Love that. Love that dynamic. Yeah. So, you know, Princess with the Cursed Sword is the first of those games that I made. And I made two more using kind of the same exact system. Uh, and those are um, The Empress and Her Seer and Tavern at the End of the World. Um, you know, the former is based on based on kind of me being obsessively interested in Rasputin and also what's her name uh Phyllis no someone there's um I can't remember her name off the top of my head but the professional like the personal psychic of the Reagans um her oh. story is <laughs> super interesting the idea of like being like this this like magical grifter who suddenly exerts influence on like world leaders uh was super interesting and then uh tavern at the end of the world is about um joan is about huh is it joan quigley joan quigley yes yes exactly (laughs) oh she's fascinating and then tavern at the end of the world is about um running a kind of a clandestine um um business under an occupation um and these games all three of them kind of use tarot decks you know tarot cards for prompts um Mm. not just kind of the you know the the card rank but also the image on the cards um which Mm. means that you can play them with different decks and get very different tones which is really exciting to me because I have way too many tarot decks and I, I wanted more games that would let me play with, you know, with different decks in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. I love this concept of a game that you kind of made for yourself to solve a problem that you were having. <laughs> um, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, but um, you, you published a book a few years ago called Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, um, mm-hmm. which um, I read a couple weeks ago and found still very relevant, whatever that says about how little or how much the gaming industry still has <laughs> to grow up. Um, but one of my favorite 
things that you talk about in the book is how some of the best games are driven forward by really impassioned individuals in contrast to games that are made by like big teams of people. Um, you kind of compare it to how books are typically written by an individual and how art fine art is like a painting is typically made by one person. Um, and when, when you're just, when you were just speaking about, um, princess with a cursed sword just now, it kind of reminded me of that. And I'm wondering if you could say more about what makes games by solo developers, uh, so great. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, in kind of the years since I wrote that book, I've, I've sort of, I've sort of revised a little bit my, like, I feel like I'm really heavily biased against, or at least when I wrote that book, I was really heavily biased against collaboration um, (laughs) in a way that like, I don't, I don't know that I still stand behind, but Mm -hmm. I do still, you know, the, the idea that larger and larger teams dilute creativity um, I think it, 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 I still stand behind the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, the larger a team that you have, the fewer, you know, the, the, the less creative control an individual exerts. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, in, in, in practice, I find that the works that have the, most the, the strongest sense of the creator the, the strongest sense of of you know i of identity are like you know games that i find on like itch.io mm-hmm. or somewhere where like that have like you know where like one or two people worked on them um mm-hmm. and we're really given the space to have a lot of creative control to like really be allowed to bring their own visions um into their work on compromise mm-hmm. um yeah and so um for me like you know the kind of the, the 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 reason i wrote that book is because i was really invested in the idea that giving more individuals the means to create uh, their own games without needing to rely on large teams, without needing to rely on publishers, would result in more personal works, more interesting works, works about you know a, a wider variety of human experiences. Um, and you know, I, you know, I look at you know, I look at something like I look at something like games that are made in uh, you know Bitsy, which mm. is you know a freeware tool that came out uh, a few years ago um or like you know things that were being that were made in twine um after the release of rise of the video games Zinsters. and you know there's a, a really there's a, a really dramatic shift in what kinds of subject matters are um g- you're seeing games being made made of uh and so i think that you know, you know, essentially that book is just a call to give more power to the people, um, to, you know, to smash gatekeepers and give more people the ability to, like, just be able to, like, get the tools to make their own stuff um, because it will result in more interesting stuff. And that, you know, I still believe in 100%. 
Absolutely. And just to to flesh out the concept a bit more for folks who may not be familiar with with zines and the significance here, like what is a video game zinester and how do they contrast with our typical understanding of how games are made? Yeah. Um, so I've I'm you know, I've always been really involved in zine communities as well. And so that's kind of the metaphor that I reached for in this book. Um, So a zine being essentially like a self-published, self-distributed, you know, magazine, you know, it's where the name comes from. Um, And so, you know, I might um, make, I might write a, uh, you know, a a short, zine about i'm actually kind of working on one uh about wheelchairs and the experience of like getting a wheelchair adjusting my um adjusting my expectations around being a wheelchair user Mm -hmm. um so i might i might write that and you know photocopy the pages a bunch of times or you know realistically just print a bunch of copies at my work using DePaul's printer and printers <laughs> and toner. Um, Hell yeah. And then, you know, staple those together and, you know, in, in the before times we would have gone to like Chicago zine fest or something and mm. like traded them with people for their own zines mm. um, or, you know, had a booth and sold and just like sold them to people directly. Um, but the whole idea is that it's a method of self-publishing that doesn't rely on publishers to gatekeep who, what kinds of works can be in print. And so you result in like a lot of material that's very personal. And, you know, historically you see a lot of work that is, that is too queer, that is too, you know, too kinky, too mm-hmm. um, too marginalized to be in the mainstream press. Um, so, you know, here in Chicago, um, we have the uh, the L- the LA and M, the Leather Archives and Museum, and a great big part of their collection is a zine library um, mm. because. It- a lot of the history, the early history of the leather community and the early history of queer communities was not being printed by like Simon and Schuster. Um, <laughs> it was being self-published by these, you know, either by small presses or by people, you know, photocopying stuff that they, that they'd read. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, shift this idea and, and and frame video games in the same way that if we if people are able to self-publish works, um, then we will see you know we will see s- such a broader range of human experiences covered and more marginalized experiences, which is the thing that we definitely saw um, with the proliferation of Twine games um, mm-hmm. that we were seeing. Uh, a whole lot more queer games, queer representation than we were seeing in the game, the you know, mainstream games industry at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of the book um, was sort of touching on the, the really narrow scope that so many mainstream games um, were showing about 
humanity in contrast with the diversity of people who play video games. Um, the book, it's been almost 10 years since it came out. Um, but I'm wondering how, if, if at all your view of queer representation in gaming has changed at all since the game came out, how do you feel about, uh, uh, <laughs> about I always, uh, this question? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the short answer is I don't think it's changed nearly enough. Um, the disappointing thing I think is that, um, that book kind of, uh, anticipated a lot of really formative work by, uh, queer game developers who almost all ended up kind of getting pushed out of the mainstream industry. You know, Mm. we saw after, you know, Rise of the Video Games Easters came out, and then we saw, you know, I guess what some folks will call the Twine Revolution. Mm. I, pro- I, I probably wouldn't use those those words. Um, and then we saw a huge backlash to, you know, not just that, but to, you know, to women and marginalized people getting more of a foothold in games in general mm. in the form of Gamergate. Um, which resulted in a lot of marginalized people being pushed out of the industry. And um, a lot of those, you know, game developers, a lot of those queer and trans game developers who were doing really formative work, you know, in that twine revolution, you know, part of, uh, you know, the moments don't work in games anymore. Mm. Um, You know, maybe they work in, you know, writing or they're, they do like archival work or whatever, but very few of them got like mainstream, like, you know, are, are working on projects at studios where they're developing games. Um, mm. You know, I became a teacher um, because it was no longer sustainable for me to um, keep doing the work that I was independently. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I am, I am I am pretty it would it would be dishonest for me not to say I'm pretty disappointed how a lot of things turned out um but I also I mean I also do think that I also think that you know now we do have we have platforms like like itch um we yeah. have we have more tools that are uh, you know, available to people who are not programmers. We are, you know, continuing to see more and more games being made that are, you know, that are weird. And <laughs> I think that games are changing, but who is making money off of them is not, or at least is not changing as fast as I would like. So Anna, on this show, uh, we like to invite folks to talk about a game that had a significant impact on their life. And you talked to us about ZZT. And from uh, just a quick primer for folks from an awesome website called museumofzzt.com. But the game was originally released in 1991 by Tim Sweeney of Epic Games and consists of several, 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 
and consists Severable. of several playable worlds. Uh, the gameplay is pretty simple and straightforward. Um, you control a white on blue smiley face that can move and shoot in four directions. ZZT was technologically simple um, using text graphics and PC speaker sounds, but its limitations served to fuel creativity and an impressive amount of users went on to create their own ZZT worlds using the program's included editor. Um, the game's financial success actually allowed Tim Sweeney to continue funding game development and growing Epic into the major game for the gaming company that it is today. If you've ever played Unreal, Gears of War, Fortnite, or countless titles running on iterations of the Unreal Engine, that experience is owed to that little white on blue smelly face that picked up purple keys all those years ago. Um, so, Anna, for you, how would you sort of describe this game in a couple sentences to someone who'd never heard of it? Um, yeah. Uh, so, man, what a challenging question. <laughs> um, imagine a world composed entirely of things you could type on your keyboard. Um, oh, my gosh. I mean, the, the the thing that's interesting about CZT and why it's kind of relevant to the conversation that we've been having is that it, it was a game making tool that, you know, that kids could use. Um, mm. One, you know, one I discovered when I was nine or 10 years old. So I think that's I think that's my high level, like, you know, one sentence summary is, uh, you know, free weird looking game making tool that you know nine nine and ten year olds can use to make to make fully featured games with. Yeah. And what role has it played in your life? How long have you been playing it? Um what does it mean to you? Oh my God. Um that's a such a huge question. That's such a huge <laughs> question that I wrote a book about it. Um, <laughs> um, ZZT from Boss Fight Books. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, ZZT was the first thing that ever really empowered me to make my own games as a kid, and so uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I I owe it my kind of the entire trajectory of my work, um, not just, you know, my design work, but also my advocacy work, you know, the, um, believe ZZT is actually featured in, um, in Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, because that whole, that whole approach to, to giving, giving people who are not programmers access to, you know, making their own, the, the tools to make their own games, um, you know, that's what I grew up with uh, mm-hmm. in CCT. Um, and it's maybe unsurprising that like a lot of, a lot of creators from that community, like turned out to be queer and trans um, <laughs> that, you know, like marginalized kids who um, did not, did not really have a voice at the time. Um, were able to like find it uh, in this like weird little uh, game making tool that was kind of out of date, even like even when it was released. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was one of those. I was one of those kids. Um, I, you know, to some extent, I I I owe ZZT my voice, and it definitely, I think, shaped shaped the way that I think both about game design and maybe about art and writing in general 
what um like can you kind of paint a picture of what it would look like to spend time in ZZT? Like what do you do? <laughs> yeah. So um so ZZT um comes with a what you know what it calls a world editor, mm. um which um was free. The the you know game um originally shipped with originally shipped as a shareware title, which means that um you could you know there was you get your first game free, but then you can mail away for you know the other ones that were also made by um Tim Sweeney, um who at the time was just like a college student, uh, like living with his parents now mm. is a disgusting billionaire. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, the exciting thing about, you know, about the games was not those episodes. It was this, this, this little editor. Um, and so you press, you know, you press, you press E for editor. Um, and then you would be in this, like you'd be on this little screen with, um, these like ugly yellow walls around the edges, the, the, the kind of default, um, default empty board, um, and a little white smiley face in the middle, um, and a kind of blinking cursor. Um, and from there you, you just kind of go. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, kind of pre-built in, built in stuff. Um, that you can use to uh, make games out of, you know, there's there there are all these pre-designed enemies, you know, lions, tigers, bears, whatever. Um, uh, you know, there are items that you know come with the game, um, but all of that stuff is not the interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff that's really interesting and the stuff that led to ZZT having such a long lifespan that people are still making games in it to this day um is that it has a built-in scripting language um that's Mm. actually really really robust um it's called zzt oop for object oriented programming it's functionally programming but it's also it was also enough not like programming that i was able to figure it out you know when i was like 10 um and so the majority of what i think a you know someone you know, a contemporary uh game designer working in ZZT would be doing is kind of scripting you know what the game calls objects which are these you know autonomous um these autonomous characters that are each running their own piece of code um and they can you know send messages to each other mm. um to you know trigger more elaborate um, interactions, you know, to the to the point where uh, people can write platforming games in ZZT mm-hmm. because you just need you just need enough objects communicating with each other um, that you can essentially just program a whole different game. People have done three D games in ZZT, wow. um, and if you've ever if you look look up a screenshot of ZZT, it is not a three D game um, <laughs> by any means, but people have used this this programming language um, to be able to someone a couple years ago someone made like a mandelbrot fractal 
visualizer in ZZT. Wow. It takes, it's very slow. You have to like leave it on overnight, <laughs> but, um, but it works. Um, and that's the part of the reason that like, um, this tool has like stuck around for so long is that the scripting, even though the, even though ZZT is very, very simple, the scripting is really, really robust. Mm. Um, that's part of, I think part of how it shapes my own personal approach to game design is that, you know, I, I, I talked about, you know, the game has these kind of pre-generated enemies. You can like move around and, you know, you pick up ammo and shoot enemies, but none of that stuff is very good. Like the action stuff is not super, doesn't work super well. Like, it's 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 all on a grid, so it doesn't really in practice. It's very fiddly and often feels unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a bunch of puzzle stuff that's basically just soko bonds, so it's not actually that interesting. Um, but what all, all of the interesting games, the the you know, what's interesting about ZZT is that people can use the scripting tools to create more narrative games. Mm. Um, So I did um, a few weeks ago, I did a stream uh, with uh, Dr. Das from museum of ZZT um, of a game called kudzu from um, 1995, I believe, um, which is a game that's kind of credited a ZZT game that's kind of credited with, um, with popularizing what was called the touch and explore kind of, kind of play mm-hmm. um, where it's, it's not really, there's not a lot of action in the game. There's not a lot of puzzle solving. There's just a lot of seeing, a you know, seeing a weird thing and going up to it and touching it and seeing what it is or seeing what it does. Um, and because that's the kind of, the kind of play that like ZZT actually does best is this really exploratory narrative kind of, kind of play. And it's something that feels very similar to if you ever played contemporary Bitsy games in Adam Ledoux's Bitsy, it's essentially the same kind of play. Um, just like, going up to things, interacting with them, seeing what they do, seeing what they say, uh, they, you know, getting little messages from them. Hmm. Um, and so CZT, like working with CZT from such a young age, I think really shifted me toward appreciating, um, narrative design over, you know, over maybe more, you know, like, like action oriented design. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of space for interesting action oriented design there, but there's a lot of space mm. for narrative game design. Really cool. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks uh, keep up with your work and follow you? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at adult underscore, which, um, and you can find my games at w.itch.io or witchio. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, my, most recent game um, is uh, I Love You, A Live Girl, um, which is can be found in the Hibernation Games anthology on Itch. If you go on itch.io and type in Hibernation Games, um, you will find this anthology uh, edited by Lucian Khan. 
Um, it's a solo game about writing messages to your lover who you're apart from disguised as Amazon reviews. Oh my God. Okay, we are definitely checking this out and we will definitely <laughs> link all of that in the show description. Um, Anna, thank you so much for joining us on Pixel Therapy. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly if you're not up for contributing monetarily but you enjoyed this episode you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and following us on instagram at pixel therapy pod that stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythopodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And of course, you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Um, This week, we want to tell you about the Estrella Lesbian Foundation for Justice. It is the only philanthropic organization working exclusively to advance LGBTQI human rights around the globe. Um, They support brilliant and brave grantee partners in the U.S. and internationally who challenge oppression and seed change. They work for racial, economic, social, and gender justice um, because all people deserve to live live our lives freely without fear and with dignity. Um, We wanted to direct you specifically to their Collective Care Response Fund, which enables LGBTQI and people of color-led grassroots movements to boldly confront the impacts of COVID-19 across the globe now and for the long haul while building interconnected ecosystems of support and resilience. Um, Here in the U.S., uh, eviction moratoriums have unfortunately come to an end Um, And the Delta variant shows no signs of slowing down. So I think this organization's fund um, is an awesome way to support, not just here in the U.S., but around the globe. Um, So you can learn more and donate at astreafoundation.org. And that is spelled A-S-T-R-A-E-A foundation.org. And on their website, you'll find their collective care response uh, fund. And we'll be sure to drop a link for that in the show notes for you. Absolutely. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel, Pixel Therapy. therapy. Bye-bye. <laughs>